Uh, at the children's church, they'll be turning water into wine, um, which is uh, great Kool-Aid. So uh, if y'all want to go, I, I understand. Um, so, uh, But we are delighted that you're here with us this morning as we're uh, studying the book of John together. We're seeing uh, who Jesus is, and we're beginning to uh, wade in and see what he does now. John 1, uh, we just finished, is a preamble. It tells us who Christ is, and other folks are saying who this Christ is supposed to be, and now we're getting action. Now we're seeing, actually, him do things. And it's important for us, uh, as we see him do things, to know what he does and who he is are always connected and feed into one another. And so um, as we uh, look at it this morning, it's important to remember that. Because we just finished John 1, and at the end of John 1, Jesus and Nathaniel have an interaction. And Jesus sees Nathaniel and tells Nathaniel uh, who he is, and Nathaniel says, Wow, I can't believe you knew this. Surely you are the Son of God. And Jesus says to him, You will see greater things than this. You'll, you will see more things than this that will make you believe. And that's in uh, chapter 1, verse 50. And two verses later, we see this story. We see uh, Jesus live up to his word of, of, you will see more than just that. You will see a picture. And here we see him turn water into wine. It's his first sign. And, and Reynolds Price is a Duke University professor. And when thinking about John 2 and this story of water to wine, here's what he says. He says, if you were inventing a, bi a biography of Jesus, who would invent, as the inaugural sign of Jesus' career, a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment? And what he's saying is, uh, this has to be true. Because if not, Jesus simply just fixed a catering issue, right? And a short-changed, uh, under-evaluation uh, issue of catering wine. But it's more than that. So we ask the question, why wine? Why a wedding? Why then? And it's important to ask those questions. And we'll wade through uh, this passage this morning and we'll look at three different things. First, uh, who is Jesus? Second, uh, what's our response? And third, what's good about it? What is good about the fact that Jesus turned water into wine? And it can be said... Uh, that this is just a small snapshot into the whole entire scope and goal of all of Scripture. This is a small picture of what will be in the future. So as we uh, walk through it, let's um, first pray. Lord, uh, you turned water into wine. And Lord, it's a miracle and it's a sign that you did that, that attests to something so much larger. And so here this very day, there's many things in our lives that we long for something simple to be turned into something extravagant. A problem to be fixed with a solution by you. So Lord, whatever that is in each of our lives this very day, remind us that you are with us. You don't simply just fix catering issues, but Lord, you do so much more and mean so much more. So we pray this very day that you would be at work. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first question, who is Jesus? What is Jesus saying about himself in this story? And in that day, weddings uh, were different than weddings in our day. 
Weddings in that day lasted seven days, and it was considered the greatest moment, the greatest event of a single person's life. The pinnacle, so much so that an event before or after your wedding couldn't hold a candle to that celebration. Whether you're rich or poor, it was the event of your life. And so for the wine to run out was a big deal. And, and for Jesus to be at this wedding, he's simply fixing the shame that this bridegroom is about to feel. He, he's, he's supposed to put on this wedding for all these people, and he's run out of wine, and he's saying, oh goodness, we are short. And, and he's thinking this, and his family is seeing this, and he's thinking, what's going to happen next? What will happen next? Now, enter Jesus, water to wine. We know this story. But what's so immaculate, and as we see who Jesus is, is that this very sign, sign shows his glory. It shows his glory because this is his first sign, and it's simply his calling card. Everything he does after this, people will know this is the wine guy. This is the guy who turned water into wine at a wedding. Everyone will know. One of my favorite uh, Chicago Cubs players uh, Starling Castro in 2010. He was a 20-year-old, uh, had so much promise. His first at-bat as a 20-year-old in the major leagues, he hit a three-run home run. Right? Everyone will know Starling Castro because of the very first at-bat he had. He went to the New York Yankees three years later, so he's dead to me now. But um, everyone will know Starling Castro because his first at-bat, his first very thing he did in the major leagues, the calling card of Jesus is water to wine. It's who he is. It's not raising someone from the dead, though he will. It's not feeding 5,000, though he will. It's not um, talking about sexual ethics or money, though he'll address all of those things. His first sign is turning water into wine. Why? Who is Jesus in this story? And what he's saying about himself is this. I am the Lord of the feast. I'm the Lord of the feast. And in that day, there's the Lord of the feast, this guy who would set the tone for the whole entire party, the seven days. He would keep everything going. And what he is saying, what Jesus is saying in this story, he says, I'm the one that keeps it all going. I'm the one that provides wine. I'm the one that brings festival joy that everyone can enjoy. I'm going to make sure of it. I'm going to turn water into wine. I'm going to bring a feast for a people. And in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 25 to a people in slavery, to a people in bondage, he wants to give them hope. And what does he say? He doesn't say, hey, your chains will be off one day. It'll, be, it'll all be good. And he doesn't say, hey, um, this, your circumstances will be different. And don't worry. Don't worry. It'll be different. What he says is something so much more beautiful than that. Because in Isaiah 25, he says to the people of Israel in bondage, he says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from their face, and the reproach of the people will be take, he will take far from all the earth. For the Lord God has spoken.
Jesus is the one who is the Lord of the feast. And it's beautiful because it's not simply he just fixes a problem. It's beautiful because he sets out this, this feast in a festival joy for all of us. It doesn't just simply fix this, a problem with a solution. It's something so much more attractive and beautiful. And how does he do it? He does it by turning water into wine. Turning water into wine, which points out something very important. In all of Scripture, between God and his people, it talks about a relationship. And in that relationship, it's calling his people to actually have a palpable experience of who God is. Not simply a knowledge. Not simply to know what God's about or who he is or some characteristics. What they're saying, what what it's saying in scripture for the people of God to know about God is to know things, to move into experience. Like in Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. I know you know the Lord is good, but taste and see it. Psalm 119, open my eyes that I might behold your wondrous things in thy law. 1 Peter 2, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. It's sensory experiential language. The Christian faith is something that calls you to nothing less than this. To experience who God is. And the Lord of the feast does it in this very moment. He could have said to the people, I'm the guy. But what he does is turn water into wine for folks to experience festival joy into who he is. If you go to Goodman Coffee, and if you get your coffee cup from Matt Morrison or or Noah Pendergrass, and you go to fill it up in the Cambros all against the wall, you will see signs against the wall. And those signs tell you what the coffee is, what that blend is. But what it says at the bottom are different notes, different hints, different tastes that the coffee has. And it's not simply a transfer of information. What it is, is it inviting you into something that says, when you taste this, you will taste this part of it. The cherry and the bourbony taste and all of these different notes in the coffee. And what scripture says of, oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Open the eyes of my heart. Things like that. It's saying, it's inviting you into something so experiential. That when you actually, you taste and experience who God is, you'll notice all of these things. You'll know that he's good. You know he's the Lord of the feast. You know he's full of joy. Because that's what he offers you when you experience him. Christianity is not simply something that you sign on to and follow and obey and simply do, do, do and be so good. It's something that you're to experience and nothing less than that. To follow a God who who goes to a wedding and turns water into wine because he's the Lord of the feast. It's who Jesus is. Where in your life do you need to know Christ is calling me to experience and enjoy him? Because right now it doesn't feel that way at all. You might be constipated with so much knowledge about him that you don't know how to experience him. Or maybe you know nothing about him to even know how to enter into an experience with him. The Lord of the feast, the one who brings festival joy. So if Jesus is the Lord of the feast at this wedding, what, how do we respond What do we do with this Lord of the feast? And in that day, wine was so important. Because at weddings, if you didn't have wine, you could actually have a lawsuit against you. You would call, gather people to this exciting event, 
for nothing because there's no wine. And, and rabbinical commentators would say, um, without wine, there is no joy. Right? Wine and joy go together. So you can understand why Mary's panicked. She sees the wine is out. She's at this party, and she sees what's on the, on the, on the horizon. It's not look good. It's going downhill fast. Uh, if you uh, have seen the movie The Field of Dreams, it's one of my favorite movies. It's 30 years old. Um, so I'm not going to spoil it for you, but I could. Um, and it's at the very end. And what this whole movie is about is uh, this, this Iowa corn farmer named Ray Kinsella. He's played by Kevin Costner. And he hears this voice that says, if you build it, he will come. If you build it, he will come. And he's like, what does this mean? And he sees this vision in his cornfield in Iowa of a baseball field. And he kind of realizes, I think this voice from the sky is telling me to tear down my crop and build a baseball field, which he does. His cash crop, he tears down and builds a baseball field. And all of a sudden, um, he's like, all right, why did I build it? And he sees out in the field this baseball player. And it's Shoeless Joe Jackson, a famous baseball player who's deceased. And he and Shoeless Joe Jackson play baseball. He and a ghost play baseball. And then Shoeless Joe leaves the field and goes back into the cornfield. And he says, can I be my friends? And Ray's like, sure, I guess, to a ghost, uh, by the way. And so this ghost uh, brings back these famous baseball players like uh, Babe Ruth and you name it. And he's watching the greatest players ever. Um, I've said two baseball illustrations in this sermon. I'm not even a baseball fan, really. Um, he sees these, the greatest players to ever play. He sees them play baseball. And at the end of the movie, there's this scene where he's watching these players play. And he and his friend uh, named Terrence Mann, played by James Earl Jones. Shoeless Joe Jackson says, hey, Terrence Mann, do you want to come out with us in the cornfield? And so he starts to walk out with them. And Ray Kinsella, filled with jealousy, says this. He says, why him? Why Terrence Mann? I built this field. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me. I want to know uh, what's out there in that field. Take me with you. I want to know. And Shoeless Joe says to Ray Kinsella, who's filled with jealousy, but you're not invited. And he says, not invited? You're a guest in my corn. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me. How dare you say I'm not invited? I've done everything, he says, I've done everything I've been asked to do, and I didn't understand it. But I've done it. I have once asked what's in it for me. And Shoeless Joe says, what are you saying? And Ray Kinsella finally just lays it out there and says, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Mary has done everything that's asked of her. Everything. And at this moment, she goes to Jesus when the wine's out and says, there's no more wine. And Jesus doesn't really answer her question. Doesn't really uh, get at what she's asking. And she doesn't say, what's in it for me? She goes to him and says, uh, there is no more wine. There is no more wine. And what she's asking is not a pushy or twisting the arm of Jesus. It's actually noble and brave and faithful. Because she remembers 30 years ago, before this wedding, in Luke 1, an angel visited her and said, Hey, you're going to have a son. 
And this son's going to be amazing. He's going to be the son of the Most High God. And he'll, he'll sit on the throne and be over the house of Jacob and, and, and live forever and have an eternal kingdom. And she says, I'm a virgin. How can this be? And the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She's a scared teenager. And the angel says, You're going to be the mom of the Most High God. You will have a son who will reign forever. And what does she say? She says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If you flash forward 30 years to a wedding in Cana where there's no wine, she goes to Jesus and she says to the one who's the son of the Most High God and she's been told about and she's raised all of these years, says, hey, the wine's out. You're the guy who's supposed to, you know, be on the throne forever and be the son of the Most High God and be pretty powerful. And she says to him, that guy, the wine's out. And what does he say to her? He says, woman... Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, it sounds very harsh to our ears. Saying woman, and then saying uh, a reactionary question. And then to say, that has nothing to do with me. But what it is, is saying woman. It's a tender, courteous remark. To his mother, he's saying, woman, the person who I love and know. This is not reactionary or harsh. This is to someone I know, and you're my mother, and I love you. And my time hasn't come yet. Because he's only he only calls his mom, woman, twice. Here in this story, and then John 19, when he's on the cross, and he looks down, and he sees his family, and he says to his mom, woman. At the beginning of his ministry, his first sign, and he's laying on a cross, he says to her, woman. It's the only time he calls her that. Amazingly tender. Amazingly courteous. Amazingly powerful. And what's beautiful is that when, when Mary asks Jesus, hey, there's no more wine, and she is told by Jesus, hey, this doesn't have to do with me right now. What's her response? It is not... What is in it for me? What it is, is she's utterly content. Because she says to these servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Why? Because she's not after the ability of who Jesus is. What he can do. What, what she can get from him. It's not twisting his arm. It's her saying to him, you're my son. And I know you can do it. I've been told a lot of powerful things about you, and I would, this would be great if you could do this, because I know you can do it. You know, like you, you raise your hand in elementary school, and you say, can I use the bathroom? And of course, someone snarky says, I don't know, can you? Because you know, the correct grammar is may. May I use the restroom? Can is saying, do you have the ability? May I is, do I have permission to use that ability? Mary is saying to Jesus, can you, I know you can but can you use your power for this? You have the ability to. He says to her, woman. At the wedding in Cana, he says, woman, my time has not yet come. 
Because the next time he will call her woman, his time will have come and he will shed his blood and call her woman again. A tender remark. She asks him a question with the request and his remark and rebuttal is something tender and compassionate that's simply saying, trust my love, my power, and my care for you. When you ask me something, trust my love, my power, and my care for you. When you ask Jesus for something, where do you need to hear him say to you, trust my love and my power and my care for you? And then where do you need to respond like Mary did? Where she says, do as he tells you to do to the servants. Where she says to the angel, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Because you know, if you've been a Christian for longer than three minutes, you ask something of God. And he begins to answer your request by ways you have no idea what he's doing. And eventually down the road, you can look back on it and see that makes total sense. But right now, you're scratching your head thinking, what in the world is he doing? I've asked him for this one thing and he's not doing it. Where do you need to trust the words of Jesus that says, trust my love, my care, and my power for you? So Jesus is Lord of the feast in this story. And and then we're supposed to respond in ways of trusting this one who's the most son of the most high God. What is good about it? We are here on a Sunday morning in 2019. And this was a wedding in Cana years ago in a different society and culture. What is good about this story? What's good about this story is that it's a picture, a small picture of what's going to be, what will be. In Scripture, it talks about God being this uh, this groom, this bridegroom, and his people being the bride. And he's preparing this feast for that day where the bridegroom and the bride come together in that language. And what Jesus does in this small story is prepare for a great feast ahead. Because what he does at this wedding, when he says, my time has not yet come, what he knows is this. The next time I prepare and provide wine at a wedding, it's going to be my wedding. And for me to prepare wine and provide wine at my wedding, it's going to cost me something great. Because when Jesus sees wine, he sees blood. And when people drink wine and have joy, he knows it's going to cost him his own blood for his people to have joy. Right before he dies and goes to the cross, Jesus is with his disciples. And what he says to them is this. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that you may have joy, and that joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus knows for his friends, for his people, for his bride to have joy, it's going to cost him something. And for their joy to be complete, and for their joy to, for them to have wine and to drink it, it's going to cost him his blood. 
On his wedding day, his people will drink of his blood and be full of joy. Because the same author that writes this story in John 2, writes in Revelation 19, this picture of the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where God and his people are together, and he talks about this glorious day. And he sees God and his people forever. Celebrating with the Lord of the feast, who's provided the wine, full of joy. He's feasting with his people. Because the Christian faith is nothing less than this. We enjoy who God is because he prepares something for us so utterly amazing, so utterly beautiful, so utterly joyful that we feast with him. We feast with him. But what do we do with this story? And the first thing is this, that we admit that we're out. Mary goes to Jesus in this story and says they're out of wine. Which means there's about to be no joy in this wedding party. To go to Jesus, you cannot say, I'm seven-eighths full, I would love to be topped off. It has to be said, I know you can do this. In Luke 1, you're called the Son of the Most High God. I know you can fill me up, so Jesus, I'm empty. And when you begin to say things like that, when you say you're out, then you begin to do the second thing, which is take credit. Take credit. This bridegroom in this story in John 2 knew the wine was out. It wasn't a surprise that it was, that it was going to be out. He knew that it was out. And all of a sudden, he hears this guy say, this is the best wine I've ever had. You think he, he just uh, knew that was going to happen? No, he knew it was going to run out. And what he does is take the credit for what God has provided. So that everyone else can enjoy. So when we admit that we're out, that's when we begin to say, Jesus has provided a wine for everyone to enjoy, even myself. And that's what makes that wedding in the future at the wedding supper of the Lamb so beautiful. And when you begin to say that you're out, and when you begin to take credit for something that Jesus provides, it begins to change you. Change you in such a way that you're like Mary. You go to him with the little things. She didn't bring a dying child or someone who was um, so close and sick in death. What she went to him with was a catering issue. And what he does is blow their mind and transform it. She goes to him with such a small thing. But also what this story does tell us too is that we use this on ourselves. This is a wedding. And for some, this stirs up something in you and maybe something of brokenness. Because you've been in a family and a household of a broken marriage. And maybe you're in a, a marriage that you're miserably in. Or happily in. Or you're widowed, divorced, engaged. Or you're not married and miserable. Or you're married and fine. And this wedding in, in, in John 2 speaks of the great wedding in Revelation 19. That speaks into every situation we have in our relationship with marriage. Now, it's different for every single person, but it is true that somehow the Lord speaks into each of our relationships in marriage and our relationship with marriage in such a way that we're transformed. 
We have a correct view. And then lastly, we live joyfully because Jesus sat in a world sipping the cup of coming judgment. He knew at that wedding that the next wedding he's going to be at is going to be his own wedding. And it's going to require much of him. He's going to sip the coming judgment in this world to prepare for that wedding. And right now in this world, we can sip the cup of joy because we know what's ahead of us. This wedding feast of the Lamb. So that when we ask, like Ray Kinsella asks, what's in it for me? We hear the voice of Jesus say, you and I, together feasting, enjoying the wine. Enjoying each other at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Because Jesus is the Lord of the feast. Let's pray. Lord, may we come to you when the wine has run out, when the joy has run out, because you are a God who hears the small things. You are a God who does provide the wine at the wedding feast. And we're called to drink that wine and to be filled with the joy that you provide. So as we take communion, as we uh, begin to encounter you in new ways, Lord, Show us more of how you truly do fill our cup and that we taste and see that you're good. When it's hard and we fight for faith, Lord, may we taste and see and know that you're the Lord of the feast and you're the one that does provide enough for us to have joy in this very life. And this our very circumstances now that look bleak and dark and dim you have much to say about it because you went to the cross for it. And that transform us and speak into us this very day. Pray this in your name. Amen.